Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hello, I'm Sam Fry and welcome to a brand new episode of Technique, the podcast where we talk to artists about what they're doing with technology. And today we're speaking to an artist who broadcasts art to the stars. Today's interview is conducted by Richard F. Adams, and he's speaking to John Pettigrew. Today I'll be talking to someone I've known for quite a while. This man has had almost as interesting a career as I have, very varied always, always pushing the boundaries of what can be done very quietly in the background. Welcome, John Pettigrew. So as Richard says, John has had quite a varied career, starting life in a large FMCG corporate before going on to create his own company focused on generative music. And generative art is certainly one of the key subjects of this podcast. Both John and Richard speak a bit about that as a subject about creating generative art in music and even creating generative narratives. Before talking about this project of broadcasting art to the stars, no, I wasn't joking. And then we'll finally talk a little bit about artificial intelligence. So I'll hand you over to Richard, who is asking John a bit about his early career. One of your previous lives, you were marketing director of a large FMCG company, as I understand it. What made you start to work creatively and with creative media? Well, I I worked for 10 years in consumer goods. I was lucky enough to be able to leave that particular post because of a merger in um, that sector. So I I had a few years when I didn't have to work, but I spent some of the money on doing an MBA at Cranfield. And I met there somebody who was interested in creating real-time music using computer-based systems. And that was Tim Cole, and the company was Sayo.com. We uh, created and launched Koan Music, the first generative music system. Now, Sayo was you know, successful in that it was sold, I think, to Sony and then went on Sony mobile phones and things like that some time ago now. but And that, that was solving a problem for a company like that because it was using algorithms to create the music rather than files that it was. It, would it was, take, uh, you know huge amounts of memory up. Yeah, I mean, it was, it was early stage algo com, al, algorithmic composition. It takes a long time to code something as sophisticated as that because if you think the rules for music are very nuanced, so although there's... In, at least in the Western music style, you can encode things like minor and major scales and all sorts of other approaches. What you're, we were trying to do was to use algorithmic composition to create music in real time. You'd set a set of parameters and the music would be different each time. There's quite a, li- uh, quite a lot of that around at the moment, but do you think it's particularly advanced? No, I mean, the, the solution we came to was that we were clearly going to produce music which didn't have that many rules. Mm. So ambient music and some techno music, it was ideally suited for at that time. But the kind of sophistication you might need to create something which is more coherent than those styles is enormously difficult. I mean, there are people like David Cope at the University of California, Santa Cruz, who are trying to recreate styles that people would recognize. But I think my final take, Richard, was that People associate emotion with music, and if you have music which is too 
unconstrained, it doesn't actually emotionally engage with people. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting thing. In visual arts, I was just making a note to someone the other day that, that, that there's a funny shift happened in visual art in that, if you like, the joke that was abstract art where everybody said, oh, I, you know, a child could do it, this, that, and the other, has suddenly, yeah. the last few years, evolved into mainstream decoration for people's houses. And they suddenly, yeah. they suddenly seem to have got it. And, mm. I, and I wonder if all that's happened with the music is, of course... We haven't got to the stage where we get it. I'm not. I'm still not sure Stockhausen is regarded as music, for instance, by many no. people when they hear him. Do you think that problem will continue for a long time? I mean, because clearly algorithmic music is much more efficient. It's much smarter. We're moving into an age of AI. But if you think about that, my my interest in trying to encode human emotion and knowledge yeah. in the visual art as well. My understanding would be that in current generations, people do like the experience from a previous kind of work and they want something that is quite similar. So something which has fewer rules is not going to engage with people, as I was saying earlier. Yeah. I, I don't think that, apart from perhaps useful tools that Tim Cole and his brother Pete, who is the main programmer, are still doing, they are creativity tools, but they're not going to be the kind of thing that people will say, I want to engage with this kind of emotion or I want to change from this emotion to another emotion, I'm going to engage with a computer-based system to try and find something. Do you think then that the sort of aesthetic experience, if you like, for the mm. art lover who's listening to this stuff is about the act of playing with it rather than the act of listening? Yes, I mean, there, was, there was a certain group of people when we first launched Koan 25 years ago now, I suppose, who liked the idea that they could be part of the process. But it, it still amazes me that people can remember the first album they had and will be able to play it and that will make them feel whatever they want to feel, whether it's going back to when they were teenagers or whether it's you know, has moved on. So I don't think that people's attitude towards music has changed that much, but people did enjoy the generative nature of it and the interactive nature of it. Yeah, I wonder if that, that's part of the issue with it, in that, like you said, the music comes out largely, because you put fewer rules in, it comes out largely unstructured. And, you know, we've got this pattern recognition intelligence, and, and if we can't see a pattern, or the pattern's not exciting, yeah, you don't get it. And I, th I think when you listen to a Bach or a, a Mozart, I mean, they're hugely patterned music. And if, if you were to do some kind of blind test, to use my wine business jargon, and you'd play a generative composition which plays differently each time from a good amateur generative music composer or collaborator with the computer or with two or three of the people who we signed to our label, would people be able to say, I know that is produced by somebody who really understands the generative music algorithms and is very good at predicting how people will respond? In other words, would Brian Eno's work that we published be recognisably better than other lesser-known techno and ambient artists who we had composed for us and would sell their music. In fact, we didn't sell their music, we just sold their, their score. Their settings, if you like. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, that's an interesting point, because what you're talking about there is something that's happened, I think, across computer-based arts. Yeah. Uh, technology has lowered the, the level of entry, if you like. Anyone can do it. You know, everybody's got a camera now, everybody can be a photographer... And they need minimal 
sort of training and minimal effort to sort of get to that stage. You get something which is oversupplied, mm. and unless you have somebody to help you understand what's good and what's not good, and they used to be called journalists, didn't they, in yeah. the old days? Um, <laughs> or teams. They, <laughs> then then you're, you're not going to be in a position to know, out of the huge choice, what, what is good and what is not good. And you know, clearly, when we were working in California and in the UK on composition using algorithms, algorithms wasn't a word that anybody that I knew ever understood what I meant. But now everybody knows what an algorithm is. So most of the art that we, we use is fixed. So there the, are the rules created by the artist and we understand those rules. So a generative system is one where you, you, you encode some of the principles of art creation. And I worked for a long time with visual artists in this field, one particular one. And to parallel music and this style of art, you would have your base of materials, sounds or colors or shapes. And then you would instruct the computer encode the computer to to only make choices within certain parameters so we had something like 150 parameters that you could alter if you wanted to but many of them were just presets but the you know the variation happens because you instruct a work of art to be created i mean it did introduce lots of really interesting things i'm still interested in this track is what is copyright and who is the owner mm. and well, in that case, the person who produces the music engine that produces the sound has copyright over that. The actual sound that's produced is belonging to the machine, if you like. So who, what actually is copyrighted if someone produces an album using these techniques? Is it the arrangement of those sounds? Is it that simple? Or is it a copyright of the rule, the rule set? It's kind of across the concept of database rights, which you're probably familiar with. They're like, w w was there a database right in Classic FM when it started or not? And people are so used to the idea. I mean, in effect, copyright is a unnatural monopoly. So talent is a monopoly. So you, you can't copy it because that person has got a really good talent. But the talent, in effect, was in the computer. And as you said, in the coders who created it in California and here. It was never really resolved in my mind. I mean, it's similar to that monkey that took a photograph of itself. Yeah, do I do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Who owns um, copyright for that now? Um, I think it went back to the photographer. In the yeah, end. well, it should really, shouldn't it? <laughs> yeah, and I, I remember we, we did quite a few installations uh, when Joan Music first came out with Cowan in various art galleries, and uh, we did one at the Royal Festival Hall, and it was playing in real time, and somebody said, oh, I want to alter this. And I said, well, I don't think Brian Eno would be too happy if you came along and tried to change his design. He said, well, it's supposed to be interactive. I said, well, it's generative. It's, it's creating in real time, and if we were to play it forever then it would, it would sound different every century into the future. Talk to me a little bit about the cinema, because I think when I met you, you were working on a, a generative cinema film, which I think you took to the Venice Biennale at one point. Yeah, the, the first screening, well, two screenings, really. There was a paid-for screening in Exeter, organised by the Institute of Digital Arts and Technology uh, in Plymouth, yeah. yeah. That was the first screening, and that was a Debussy film where somebody mixed uh, generative samples from La Mer, played for four hands, against a story with real actors playing Debussy and his mistress. And it was a film associated with how I thought Debussy was inspired to 
finish La Mer in Sussex and then also writes a very famous piece in ambient and classical music called Reflections in the Water. And so I had, I had recordings and, and then we people paid to come and see that and we played it twice and each time the music was called in differently and the visual mix was called in differently. It's a kind of dream sequence. So it was mixed visually as well while you were watching it? Yeah. So every screening theoretically could be different? It was, yeah. It was. And then the second one was at the National Film Theatre, and that was generative narrative rather than dream style. How did people um, cope with that? In Plymouth, they were very specialist, mm. and so it was just like another installation, video installation in an art gallery, except they were sitting down, played a couple of times, and then I was interviewed about it, trying to explain how generative music could create generative cinema. But the, the more interesting one for the next step for me was to try and work out how to do that with narrative, yeah. and whether in the future you can replace storyliners with an encoded system. So in that case, I created, uh, with a screenwriter, a story about two youths, and they had an adventure, and I scripted, or we scripted, six beginnings, three middles, and four ends, depending on what happened in the narrative. So we shot lots and lots of versions. And then at the NFT, NFT, we showed one version, and then we did a test run with public using mobile phones for a consumer choice so that they could decide what the next step was. The thing about generative is it's almost like all the generative work for me has been uh, too early and that we've been waiting for... AI to come along to actually work hand in hand with it because it strikes me it's going to be a, a key feature of AI driven culture and that you know I'm just thinking in TV terms soap operas have so many rules and they're continuous actually generating storylines would be a, a doozy for that it would be absolutely easy I mean I was talking to a few TV people at that time and there was just no general zeitgeist about algorithmic composition or algorithmic systems or encoding of human knowledge and one person just said, oh, so you're going to put us all out of the job, are you? you know, <laughs> that, that was 18 years ago. Yeah. Well, anyway, I mean, interestingly, you just said encoding of human knowledge. And, and what I'd like to sort of move on to is what one of the things you're doing now, which is about encoding human knowledge of a sort. This time, you actually uh, are beaming art to the stars, you, uh, as I understand it. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, we, we've had 14 missions so far. And I have a, a, a small but very smart team of people who understand how instead of beaming TV signals to the geostationary zone, we find the space coordinates of newly discovered exoplanets where there may be human life, the so-called Goldilocks planets. It's not too hot and not too cold. Mm -hmm. And some are relatively close, 35 light years, some are much further. And what we do is we beam compilations of art shows. I normally go to openings, private views, as I always feel from a filmmaking point of view. And these are all very short clips, um, which I use for social media purposes on this planet right now, because people understand that, is that I, I go to openings and private views, and there's a lot of energy in those. So visually, uh, you've, got, you've got people and the art, and it also scales the art, so you know what, what size it is. And then we do a compilation of 20 minutes, and then we, we beam them to the coordinates. So the, the dishes which would normally be at, let's say, 45 degree angle at this place on the on the planet in London. We beam them to wherever it is, like straight up. And of course, many exoplanets you can't see from the Northern Hemisphere. So we have a transmission system in Africa where you can go for the ones that can only be 
access from the southern hemisphere. So go back to what, about the encoding piece. Yeah. I think art is encoded knowledge and uh, experience. And although I, I, I occasionally, I do have a soundtrack, but I think that the art's more important than, than the sound. And the sound is normally a found sound compilation from things happening in the art gallery at the same time, but not necessarily linked to the film uh, itself. So it's not, you know, it's not like the soundtrack of what's happening to people. And then mostly from memory, I think this is true. I always go to the British Museum when they do their press days and there's always some art from which isn't contemporary, but some great art from the British Museum. How do you think people, things, aliens, do you think it will ever get picked up and, and re-encoded? Yeah. And what do you think the impact of that will be? Do you think, is it, is it in a format that is readable, do you think, or a universal or an easy-to-understand format? I suppose it'll go as a short birth of highly dense data or something. Yeah, but one of the things that I'm trying to work out with some of my technical people is we know exactly what kind of encoding system or what kind of power you need to reach particular satellites so that you only get a one-second lag when you beam the FA Cup final to Australia or whatever. One of the people I've been talking to has got some really interesting current research about fibre optics and how it isn't just the power itself. You have to make adjustments to the, the way in which transmission works. This is cable. And I think it's probably the same with satellites. So we're trying to work out through the levels of the atmosphere what research suggests what the wastage rate is because as soon as it's outside what i call earth's edge then it go forever and then whoever notices that there's some digital messaging coming through will have to work out whether it's pc or or mac or whether it's um (laughs) uh, mpeg4 or mpeg3 but they'll notice the pattern i mean that's they'll, they'll notice the pattern yeah in fact, well, one of the things that I did very early on, because like anything, you have to learn your craft, really, mm. is that the first one I sent was actually to Andromeda, a galaxy, and that's five million years for the signal to come back. And the, the people who did a big telecoms company agreed to work with me, and we sent it out to Andromeda. And I mentioned this when I went to a, my regular meeting in Cambridge. At Cambridge, they got a, a, a great team of people, probably the best in the world, involved in exoplanets yeah. across astrophysics the Cavendish Laboratory and the Institute of Astronomy. And I go and listen to world-class speakers who come into Cambridge for a week or two and you know, give their public sem- seminars. And I mentioned to one of the professors there and said, this is what I was doing. And he said, that's great, fantastic. Why are you only sending it once? <laughs> and he said, what we do is we look for our patent. So you've got to send it at least twice. Uh, so it's not just a, a perceived as a random burst. Yeah, so what I now do, uh, although this model may change, is I now send the same signal within 24 hours, so it's exactly 24 hours later. And so, you know, of course, this is what this is what they found when they picked up the FRBs, the fast radio bursts. Of course, yeah. they're coming in chunks in a very short space of time, so it looks like it's deliberate. Yeah, and it may well be. I mean, they have yeah. no idea whether they are or not. Can anybody come to you and get their art sent up there? What I do is I, I, I curate, I, I go to shows and I, yeah. I, I put stuff on my mobile and I cut it into 60 second or 30 second clips and then I send it up and if anybody wants to go on a mission, sure, I can, I can talk to them. I think the complexity of, of our human life is artists are... Uh, are interpreting that, and there's no language. I mean, the only language is that what I tend to do is text to voice 
robotic voice for the name of the show and the year it took place and where it took place. Because it's a robot voice, there's no human component to that. And it doesn't really matter if they don't get that, if they can see what's on the clips, then that's a much better experience, I think, for the, the other intelligent life in the planet than for trying to work out which of the 6,000 current languages on the planet we were using. The long-run plan is, I don't know, but I want to get more film to aggregate the films into, into these clips. Um, I want to send it out more often to more of the exoplanets. So exoplanets were first discovered in a scientific context rather than speculative context in 1995. And since then, it's approximately 3,500 exoplanets have been found. Some are what are called large Jupiter-style planets, so they're much, much too hot. There's a, a category of worlds a bit like ours. But the, the more digital data we get, particularly from the telescopes who are outside Earth's edge or in, in, the, in the atmosphere, so it's much more likely to get lots more data. Yeah. And in fact, there are lots of machine learning processes now going on which do the analysis according to you know, the precepts and the controls that um, astronomers put onto it. And it could be, this is my long-run plan, would be to progressively get clear about where there is more likely to be um, intelligent life and to perpetually beam art to those planets all day, every day. How do you cope with scientists who say we shouldn't do that? Stephen Hawking said we shouldn't be doing that, didn't he? Making ourselves visible to other aliens, that we never knew whether they'd be aggressive or not. I'm in the camp of tell them we're here, but... You know, and, and, and tell them we're here through art, not through anything absolutely else. Absolutely, through something peaceful, a culture. Make them realise yeah. we're a society. You're also doing a lot of work at the moment on machine learning, images, emotion. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. When we were doing generative music, one of the things that really did intrigue me is that you, you can have a, an emotional response of some kind to music that's not created except by the computer at that moment that you're listening to it. And that's, that's quite an interesting feeling to have. You, know, you might turn on Mozart um, if you want a particular emotion because you know that you really love Mozart. And within that, you might get a particular performer who you really love and, and is acknowledged to be much better. But how can you begin to understand how people respond to visual art in the same way as internally we, we, we have feelings about art or we choose to create feelings about um, ourselves through listening to music? So very early days, uh, 25 years ago, when we were first working on Koan, it was impossible to have the computing power to be able to get the you know, what people sometimes call big data now um, to, to respond to that. So big data is much more to do with commercial data. Mm. But I'm, I'm building up a model where the visual arts and just 2D, 2D people begin to give me information about how they respond to that. There's, there's, there's hard data and soft data, as I call it. There's, there's the, this is a Modigliani, and this is the title of it, and this is when he painted it, and this is the date of birth of the author, and this is when he died, and this is the current price on, at Christie's for this kind of work. So that, that you can, that's all fixed. Then on the other side, you can say, so what colours did he use? Can we characterise what they are? Can we, can we get all the Pantone equivalents for this? Can we see what the mix is? How, how abstract is it and how representative is it? Are we going to be able to find from people that the reason that men like Modigliani is for this reason and women on average like that? So I'm working with a, a company who are interested to support me on this. And it's sort of picture recognition 
which is very early stage because that particular company want to work on this and they're supporting me and I'll be paying them. If you put in picture recognition into their current system, their public system rather than the system that I, I guess we'll be working on, you put a Modigliani up and it just says picture frame because it hasn't learned that it's a Modigliani yet. If you can think of a way in which you can characterize the tone, the feel, the emotion, the colors, the representativeness in some kind of way, then that's the machine learning. But you have to you have to give it the model. So the situation at the moment is that I'm going to give them 100 images, haven't decided what style they would be or genre or anything. They have to be tagged with English language words. And there are some people who do this, who sell images for commercial purposes. So I might be able to license that or 100 you could probably do yourself. And then I'm going to take some of those pictures and try to get some kind of semantic view from people about the emotion they feel. But I'm, you're constrained by one language, which is probably going to be English. Mm. But I'm trying to work out some kind of heat map model where if you explain what the, the scales are, you can get people to point on a heat map. And I don't know what the semantic differential spectrums are going to be because I haven't started on it yet, except in my head. And then the commercial application, because, you know, everybody thinks they know about business because they've watched Dragon's Den and they know what The Apprentice does. My commercial application is I want to be able to ask Alexa to buy me a painting for my new house in the country. Alexa, what do I need in the study in the country? And Alexa will say, how big is it, John? It's going to be how? And then they will get to know the computer based art bot will get to know my history in the same way as it's scary, isn't it? Sometimes you go back to an email thread and you think, oh, God, did I say that 10 years ago to that guy? <laughs> Alexa, Alexa will know this stuff. Yeah. Um, and then clearly it's going to be the human choice at the end, but the art bot can look through price, availability, as well as all the sentiment parts and come up with some suggestions. But as we know, in art, every high-value art Every art that's sold, there's normally a human intervention, although more and more people are buying art online. What I'm interested to do is to see whether you can, ha instead of having a, a nice person in the art gallery where when you have a couple of thousand pounds to spend on something that you want to spend on art, um, instead of having to go to Cork Street or Dover Street in the old days or the East End or you know wherever, your, your local art dealer, you can have a conversation with a bot and the bot will remember your stuff. But there'll be variation in it. It's not going to be a completely functional bot. I've got some prototypes of the kind of conversations that I think art bots could have with you. So you know, we all have ups and downs, sequences of when we give our time over to thinking about this as an example. So instead of having to go to a dealer on a Saturday morning, you can just think on a Sunday evening, I wonder what's happening. I'll, I'll, I'll speak to Alexa. hardest part in a way is the artificial intelligence learning about things you talked about the feelings and the emotions and stuff like that and, and the sort of neuroscience side of it have you have you sort of looked into that side yeah, yeah. when we um sold out in the uh, early uh, noughties i started some work which i'm still doing really which is academic work empirical work into generally speaking human responses to machine intelligence mm. and at that time most computer systems were productivity-based rather than, than more interestingly wide-ranging. And there's a paper I wrote called Beyond Productivity, which highlighted some of the future issues as I saw it. And then I was invited to talk at MIT about what I was doing. 
And I was predicting in that lecture that in three or four generations, clearly, we're going to be post-humans, clearly. Silicon and carbon are so similar to each other in the, ele- in the universe and the elements that it's going to be really easy in a physical sense to merge carbon and silicon. And I, three or four generations will be post-humans, there's no doubt. Uh, what does that mean? I, I think we're peak human now. I think we'll be replaced in all sorts of ways, both physically and intellectually, quite soon. And, and that's the way we're going to get to the, the stars. You know. Yeah, no, no, no I'd, I'd agree with you on that. I mean, the human body clearly can't stand the environment of outer space, for one thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's the biggest barrier to even just settling on something like Mars. Yeah. Uh, the increased radiation, the sterility that comes with it. Yeah. All of that sort of stuff. Um, but but talk to me a little bit more about you see that that <laughs> peak human. What do you envisage? Because obviously what we've got now at this moment are a number of listeners who are thinking right, okay, we're going to download our consciousness into a body and become a robot. But that, as I understand it, is not probably not what you're thinking. Because my my reading of that concept would be that we will become. I'll use the octopus analogy, we will become much more octopus-like because we will exist as a node in a distributed net of intelligence in some way. And that, you know, the octopus legs are all independently intelligent. And does it mean the decline of the physical or does it just mean the extension of the physical? It's extension. Yeah. Uh, it's not. So we're not all going to get sort of tin skins and uh, start walking around shouting, kill all humans. Um, no, but there, there, are, there are some people who are uh, adding physical things to their bodies. I mean, there's a, you know, a bunch of, of geeks who, who want to do that. So you know, all these things are, 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 are pre, pre, pre the future. I think the obviously... problem I've had with that, that notion of extending your body, is that you're just doing effectively what we've done with machines uh, for the last 200 years, in that we've yeah. just built bigger and more powerful machines that extend our physical capabilities. So... You know, we've invented cars that allow us to, instead of having to walk, and it's very slow and tiring, it gets us from A to B much faster. But it's still actually performing the same function. And and my feeling with what you're talking about, peak human and and sort of post-human, is that there are a lot of new things that we just have no idea what, you know, will emerge from this. Well, I I think that... um... Whether you think there's any malice in what's been happening with you know, the, the gang in Silicon Valley and yeah. making it engage all the time with the screen and you know try and get the same emotional responses that, that we can get by meeting people but by seeing how many likes we get, I mean, that's that's to me just a, an indication of the the way in which technology is being invade is invading humans so that future generations it will be a matter of course you know the number of Children you see who are pre-languaged looking at screens doesn't bother me. It's just you know the way it's going to go, but it's it's making you know, future generations. That's why I say peak human. There are still people around who who don't look at computers all day, but of course. most people do. It's occurred to me reading and, and researching on neuroscience that the way it's going, it will actually start to tell us what good art is because we, once we understand our brains, we will be able to say this is good art. And if we can say this is good art with certainty, what's the point making it? Yeah, I mean, I, <laughs> as you know, I'm, I'm interested in the commercialization of art. So yeah. I'm interested in how, how people um, engage or self-profess to be artists. And, no, you know, no, no. But... Creating it is it's fine. But you know, I, I just love what 
the Casso's dealer said, you know, art's what sells. <laughs> yeah. Uh, otherwise, otherwise, it's just kind of indulgence, isn't it? You know? Well, yes and no. I mean, you know, the question of what art is is a massive question for another podcast. But, you know, it does serve, it's clear, it serves some sort of purpose, otherwise we wouldn't do it. Yeah. Um, and I, I just, in one throwaway sentence the other day, just said, you know, perhaps it's just, it's a way of our brains dealing with all the data and information coming in and trying to reflect on it, reflect on it in a slightly different way to give us a different viewpoint. And maybe yeah. it's as simple as that. I'll tell you once I've started to do the machine learning of style and emotion and sentiment. So sen- what I'm doing is I'm trying to build a sentiment engine that will analyze art and then we'll, we'll create sentiment engine and the sentiment engine can then create art. And let's hope somebody buys it, otherwise it isn't art. <laughs> what a wonderful way to finish, actually. So that was the podcast. Thank you very much, Richard and John, for taking part in it. It's amazing to hear a conversation go all the way from starting to create generative art to a whole question about what is art in the first place. I think they did well to stay clear of that conversation for too long. Anyway, if you're interested in finding out more about John and his work, the best way to get in touch with him is through Twitter. He is at John Pettigrew, that's J-O-N-P-E-T-T-I-G-R-E-W, and you can get in contact with him about any of his projects via that platform. Now, in other technique news, we've got our next technique event happening this week. I believe it's sold out, but it's all about selling art online, and it's at the wonderful Cockpit Arts in London. But if you're unable to come to that one, fear not, because there should be some news coming quite soon about a future event. If you want to stay in touch, then make sure you're following us on Twitter. We are at Technique UK. Plus, you can also follow Create Hub, which has its own Twitter link. That's Create Hub UK. It's on Facebook with the same name. And of course, there's the website too. That's create-hub.com. So that just leaves me time to thank those that made music for this episode. Thanks as always to Sean Miller, who created most of the music that you hear. But also to Josh Woodford, who created that last bit of music. And otherwise... This has been our 20th episode. Can you believe we've had 20 episodes? Thank you so much for listening. We've had a bit of an increase over the last few weeks, so I'm hoping that's a good sign. If you do like this podcast, please do make sure you not only tell other people about it and share it. If you share it by Twitter, then please tag at Technique UK so we can see it. And also, the best thing you can do is give us a rating on iTunes. If you go to our page on iTunes and give us hopefully a five star then that makes a big impact so we will be back for another episode next month and in the meantime take very good care of yourself goodbye design thinking has exploded into the workplace of the 21st century putting humans at the heart of design Or does it? Isn't it just the post-it note workshops? More importantly though, where did it come from? How did it become such a massive industry? And where on earth is it going? Is design thinking what is taught in design schools? And can it be used as a philosophy for the future? 
Find out more as we, Richard Adams and Sam Fry, explore these ideas with experts in the field on our first technique mini-series about design thinking. Subscribe to this podcast so that you don't miss an episode.